There we go. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Wine, Women, and Words. I am Michelle, and Diana is here, of course. And we are continuing our birthday celebration month uh, with Seth Margulis, who has returned to us. Hello, Seth. Thank you for coming back. Hey, it's great to be here. And you're not on your cell phone this time. I remember last time you had a <laughs> It's phone a lot on. more relaxing. <laughs> So no, no technical difficulties no, today. No, not so far. I well, think you're a pro at being our guest now, so. Yes, oh, it's second nature. <laughs> I've got to keep writing books so I can keep coming back. Yes, exactly. I, I think Mich Michelle and I don't have any problems with this plan at all. We approve this no. plan. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it is a Wine, Women, and Words sanctioned idea, so. Will do. So we are in the, the second week of our birthday month. And usually, I mean, not this year, but you know, I've tried to stretch out birthday celebrations at least a week. Um, so we're going strong for the month. Pretty oh, good. I do a full month. You only do a week? Well, I try. I It doesn't always work. Today, well, in my day. household and in my family, it's a full month, even a little longer. I get the whole month of October up until um, the seventh, and then my sister gets from the seventh to think, to Christmas. So I have the opposite approach, which is my mother, my son, and I all have the same birthday, oh, and cool. and I've never particularly enjoyed my birthday. So now my son is in his twenties, but I think of it as his birthday and his celebration. And magically, I don't get older, but he does. So <laughs> that's that's a good approach. Yeah. Yeah. My father-in-law and his brother are seven years and two days apart. So they always had to have joint birthday celebrations. Yeah. Yeah. Well, my mother and I had the same birthday, so we often would celebrate it together. And then when my son was born on the same day, I'm not a particularly spiritual person, but I thought there had to be some connection there. Yeah, because, I mean, what are the odds of that? That is so rare and random. And yeah. I mean... Yeah. For it to happen, you know, I've heard of other people having it, you know, where it's like father, daughter, father, you know, parent to child, but then grandparent, child, and then yeah, child. grandchild. It was, it was when that happened. It, and and it, well, anyway, it was, a, it was, a, it was a great moment in, in on many levels, of course. Mm -hmm. so, anyway, so I don't have birthdays anymore. <laughs> yeah. so. I've just stopped counting, but my. My daughter is really into numbers now. Like she, she's learned to count to twenty, and and she's really into when everyone's birthday is. So it's does you know does Daddy have a birthday? Does Landon have a birthday? And now she figured out that when it's your birthday, you get a year older. So every day for like the past week, she's she's going. Mommy, how old are you? <laughs> well, if, you can, <laughs> if you can only count to twenty, you're 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 pretty good. I'll ask her, like, well, how, how old do you think I am? And she'll go, um, three. Okay, <laughs> I'm three. <laughs> we'll take it. So we have a whole. I have a stack of books here, and it's really exciting. Um, our book of the month is Dear Fang with Love. Um, by Rufy Thorpe, and I actually think both of us have already finished this book. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then we have your new book, President's Day, Yay. which I was following religiously on Amazon to see when it would release. 
I don't know why I didn't just pre-order it. It would have made my life a whole lot easier. I thought she did. But see, and, and I just had this mystery happen to me the other day. I always forget that if you pre-order a book, Amazon doesn't charge you until the book comes out. So in my mind, that's money already spent and it's gone, but then I get hit with a random Amazon charge that I don't understand. So probably is a better, th better thing that I waited. But I was very excited to see that that came out. And then we have the Simpers on it, the book that started it all. Yeah. <laughs> well, at least for Wine Women Awards. Well, well, yeah, that's what I meant. <laughs> so what are you drinking this evening? I thought you'd never ask. So I'm having a little white wine, and it's actually, can you see, there it is. Yeah. And it's actually um, a really nice uh, wine that a friend who's a wine expert recommended. It's a Muscadet Sep A Man. Um, whatever that means, 2015. And um, so it's a really nice, it's got a little effervescence, he told me to say. Because um, I said it was a little fizzy, and he said, no, 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 effervescence. So um, cheers. Here's, here's cheers. To effervescence. Hey. We would have taken fizzy for the record. Yeah, I, I, it's still fizzy to me, but apparently not, not the, uh, the enophiles word. So. I had I was gonna drink red wine today, but it's really well. It's freezing in here now because we turn on the air conditioning. But it's been so hot and humid here that a white wine was in order. Yeah, red wines are just not good for warm days. I find mm -hmm. I prefer a white wine or rosé on a warm day. I don't know. I think this is a. a I, I'm squinting like I can read the bottle all the way across the kitchen. Um, but I think this is a, a Pinot Grigio, I think. It's really good. That's really all that I care about. <laughs> Doing the trick. Yeah, I'm drinking a Jardin de Charme, um, a rosé. I'm been in a really rosé mood lately. If it's not sangria, it's rosé that I've been drinking. Uh, but basically, I picked it up because I'm slightly obsessed with a trip the, uh, to France this fall. So everything's French. So, yeah, that's why I'm drinking that one. And Diana is still going to smuggle me in a suitcase. I've decided. It's going to be a layover in O'Hare, and I'm going to find my way to the suitcase and get in. Sounds like a plan. <laughs> little, I can do it. So, Seth, tell me, yes. um, why did you decide to write a book about Bannon? <laughs> Not fair. <laughs> <laughs> But it is fairly timely because, I mean, Bannon is getting a lot of press. Uh, Frontline right. did a whole special on him because he's the man behind the president. And then we've got President's Day, which is basically about um, a man behind the president. Help put him in. I'm sorry. I haven't had much of a chance to really look into it too further. So take it away. I'm sure you can explain it better than I can. Yeah. So it's, a, it's, it's not. I wrote it several years ago. So um, long before reality sort of caught up with fiction. Um, but it's about a, um, a very, very wealthy man, a billionaire in New York, um, who's, who um, is in the private equity business. He's acquired dozens and dozens of companies. Um, and he's sort of like, you know, Alexander at age 21, who had conquered all of the known world, there was nothing left for him. And so he decides 
for reasons of his own, to go after the White House. It's sort of the, the ultimate acquisition for him. Um, and you know, he the, the the premise of the book that he states is that you know Washington is really sort of the back office of America. New York is where real power lies. Um, so it's a political thriller in many ways based in New York, not in Washington. And New York is a place that I live in. It's it's a place I know really well. Um, I go to Washington a lot, but I don't know it as well. But I, you know, that that premise that you know Washington exists to serve. Um, you know, Wall Street business interests um, uh, rather than the other way around was something that intrigued me. It's become very, you know, with Bernie Sanders, Bernie Sanders during the election, of course, and, and now with Trump and Bannon at all in the White House, um, it, it's actually, um, the novel seems sort of prescient. But I, you know, a couple of people have said, oh, you really, you know, you got this out quick once, you know, yeah. Donald Trump happened. But the, I wish I could write that fast, frankly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but that's the premise: is that um, you know it's it's a total outsider who decides to kind of make the ultimate acquisition, and that acquisition is the White House. But he, you know, unlike Trump, but maybe like Bannon, actually, I hadn't really thought of that. Doesn't want to be president. That would be sort of you know sort of irritating for him, and you know he would ha it would open up all sorts of scrutiny. I think actually our current president is starting to feel that a little bit. Um, he just wants to be the power behind the throne. Um, and in reality, he has an agenda of his own involving revenge for a death in his family. So it's not just, um, he's not just doing it to see if he can do it. He has an actual, um, an agenda that he wants to accomplish um, through the presidency, but he does not want to be president. So that, that's sort of the, the premise of the novel. I love that. Have you read it yet, Michelle? Because I, I just got mine on Monday, so I haven't had a chance to pick it up. I haven't yet. I was really behind in reading for a while, and then the fact that I flew through Deer Fang in a weekend, and then I'm like 20 pages away from reading another book that I was working on. So now I have like all this free time. Well, okay, free time. I have all this time to to read. So. And I just read a review. I'm kind of skipping around on my questions, but I just read a review um, this morning about President's Day that said, "If House of Cards and Scandal had a baby, it would be President's Day." <laughs> and I love both of those shows. So that I think you need to use that phrase, Seth, in your marketing. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't. I didn't even see that. I gotta. I gotta look for that. Um, <laughs> you know, um, well, first of all, I love House of Cards. I actually. Um, read the book by Michael Dobbs, which I would recommend to you. It's a, it's, it takes place in England. It's really about a um, member of parliament, not about a U.S. politician. That's the genesis of the whole story. And then I love the book, and it became a miniseries that the BBC produced that was shown here about probably at least 20 years ago. Um, and I forget the actor. He was, he's a brilliant actor who starred in it. Um, and then it was adapted for... Um, I guess HBO, is it an HBO show? Uh, Netflix. Netflix. Netflix, yeah. So, um, and I actually think, you know, um, it, this is a case where I, I love the book, really liked the British show. The American show, I like, but it's um, it's sort of starting, I, I think it would have been better, more compressed, you know, it sort of kept, anyway, I don't want to put it down. It, that's it, the it, way it seems to go when um, British shows end up being translated into American shows. I've seen that a lot with whether it's television shows or movies. 
Yeah. Uh, I love a lot of the British uh, productions and um, Death at a Funeral is one of my favorite British movies. And then they did an American version. And when they came here to America with um, the American version, I think it was like Chris Rock was the main was, guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they acted like it was this whole brand new thing that Chris wrote. And he was like, um, yeah, okay. I was like, no. And it, it wasn't as... It wasn't quite as uh, refined as it was with uh, um, in the American version as it was in the English version. So mm -hmm. not everything that was British translates well. And I don't think we need to translate everything from Britain to the yeah, U.S. Leave it alone. Exactly. Well, um, and House of Cards, I do I, I do admire the show in the U.S. and the Netflix show. But I, I, my recollection is that it was just two seasons in England. So it was very compressed. You It was very satisfying. And then it was done. Whereas the one in the U.S., it's I don't know if it's in its third or fourth season. It just it, they just keep sort of chugging along. Um, I think the book and the um, British series ends when he becomes president, and here it just keeps going. You know, so um, and I watched Song Scandal. I, um, that one sort of went off the rails a little bit for me. Although yeah. some people have said my novel President's Day <laughs> is pretty fantastical too, but um, but I but I enjoyed that show. Um, very much so. Uh, yeah, I, I'll I'll take that. The files <laughs> of um, House of Cards and Scandal. <laughs> but I'm finding what we're finding an awful lot with our um, political thrillers and, and just political fiction, I should say, and just in general, that's mm -hmm. not quite so fanciful anymore. <laughs> I mean, was I know. Art, is is now considered a documentary as opposed to a mockumentary? Yeah. Um, it's it is true that um, I mean President's Day has things in it that, to my knowledge, have not happened. I mean, you know, there's there's also as with House of Cards, there's murder, there's you know um, suspicious plane crashes and things like that. But you know, the basic premise that the White House is for sale, um, and all you have to do is sort of you know spend a lot of money and pretty much say anything, and you can get there, has kind of been proven true, um, and. Uh, and 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 so for, I haven't watched, for instance, the latest season of House of Cards because it just seems too, it seems to pale in comparison to reality. Um, and even the show Veep, which I love, the HBO comedy with Julia Louis Dreyfus, I haven't watched the season for the same reason. It just seems, it's I, if I want to see farce, you can you can read the news now. You know, I, you don't need to watch HBO. So you can just go on Twitter um, and you're good. Yeah, exactly. Much quicker. So, um, but uh, yeah. So with, with President's Day, I just felt. I remember when meeting with my publisher last fall, like in October, talking about publicity for it, and we said, I mean, everyone just assumed that Donald Trump would be this flash in the pan; it would go away. It would be Hillary Clinton in the White House, and you know, and so we sort of planned the publicity accordingly. And of course, it didn't work out that way at all. And you know, it's it, it's. It's a challenge to draw attention to a political thriller in an age in which politics is kind of thrilling in a strange and unsettling way. Mm -hmm. Real politics. Mm -hmm. so, I, um, I saw a headline for an article I didn't get a chance to read yet, but it was basically the television shows with um, that deal with politics. They're all showing the ratings decreases. Is that right? Well, yeah. My luck to publish a book now. <laughs> <laughs> But, but that's okay because I think your books are, are required summer reading, at least for Oh, thank you. Yeah, I mean, I read Semper Sonnet last summer. Uh, it was, I always have to have a, a book for, the, for when I'm in the pool. 
Um, so that was something. Oh, I love the idea of thinking of you in the pool in California. Reading my book. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Those are my weekends. And um, I got so distracted by Semper Sauna, I think I might have mentioned before that I got this really weird uh, sunburn. Um, because I was so distracted by the book. <laughs> wow, that's the that's the that's the worst thing I've ever heard about my writing, frankly. <laughs> really, though, it's a compliment because I didn't notice the sunburn. Yeah. I was so distracted by the book, I was so into the book. So um, we'll have to see if that happens again with this. Yeah, I was going to say. Good. I'm, on the other hand, put a lot of sunscreen on and hope you get really tan reading. Presents. Yeah, yeah, extra sunscreen before I read the book. Yeah. So you might give her the perfect summer tan this year. Yes. There we go. We'll just go into it with a different approach this time. Right. <laughs> totally works for me. So when one thing that I kind of have a, a problem, so I'm not huge into politics. Like I kind of know the, the basic stuff. Mm -hmm. but I, you know, I couldn't really hold an in-depth conversation about it. How, when you're writing a political thriller, how do you kind of write it to make it believable and plausible, but also to make it so anyone can understand it without you know, being a political science major. Right. So I mean, that is the that is the that is the um, the challenge is you is to make it interesting as a thriller, but also plausible because you, it takes place in the world that a lot of people know at least superficially, right? So they know elections are held in November and you know primaries are held the year before and um, you know so you have to follow a certain with 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 when it's about a, the race for the presidency you have to follow a certain um, uh, sequence of events, right? So um, and that's something that I had to do but at the same time that becomes just the foundation and then you just take off from there and just imagine you know the in this case, the you know, how is it possible that um, that someone could actually engineer this, right? That he could come behind the scenes, you know, essentially buy himself a candidate for the White House and then pull the strings from behind. So I am a political junkie. I watch new sh you know political shows all night. That if I weren't talking to you right now, I'd be doing that right now. Um, and I always was that. So I you know I didn't. I had a pretty good background in some of it. Some of the mechanics of it, um, I had to refresh. You know when certain primaries were held and that kind of thing. Um, but that was, I mean, especially compared to Sampersonic, which I had to do a lot of research for. This one was relatively easy to research. I had to research things like, um, you know, how planes operate and don't operate. <laughs> um, you know things like that. Um, even cobalt mining, believe it or not, in Africa plays a role in this book. So I had to understand cobalt and how it's mined and what it's used for. Um, you know, things like that that were peripheral to the actual story, but it was really important um, that I get it right. But the politics of it, um, I, I, I had a pretty good grounding in, and I've never written anything political before, so I could just use everything that I had been, you know, idly acquiring over the years, watching television, reading the paper every morning. Um, so much it wasn't easier to write in some ways. It had its own challenges, but compared to Semperson, it a lot, a lot easier from a research perspective. That one I had to do a lot of research, both um, uh, book research and also going to various sites. And uh, since you mentioned Semper, so you switched genres. Your last book was a historical fiction thriller. And now you're yeah. a political thriller. Was it hard? I know I don't really know a lot of authors that kind of jump, 
genres like that. Yeah, it's. Um, I think it drives my agent crazy because, you know, it, the, the irony is. Um, so I, you know, during the day, I, I write fiction every day, and I publish, I think, seven or eight novels. But I, um, but I'm also a branding consultant by day, um, and do a lot of um, uh, work with big companies, advising them on their brand, and I do a lot of traveling for that. And I've totally failed to establish my own brand in writing. Um, it makes it hard because if you know if you like historical fiction, which I know you both do, or even historical thrillers, then here comes a political thriller, you know, which and historical fiction tends to appeal to women, political thrillers more to men, although there's all sorts of, that's a vast generalization. So as for someone who makes his living branding companies, I've been really done a poor job creating a consistent brand for myself. That said, you know, um, and I've written uh, a satire on the New York City real estate market called um, Closing Costs. I wrote a, um, a domestic drama, I guess you could say, called Losing Isaiah, which was made into a movie a number of years ago. Um, so there's a couple of mysteries, a psychological thriller, so no consistency. I, maybe I'll figure that out someday. But um, but I realized that you know I you know in school you probably heard this. Your teacher said you know write what you know. Um, you know that's that's always the first piece of advice they give if you if you're facing a blank piece of paper or a blank computer screen. Write what you know. But I think for me and I would give this advice to a lot of write to any writer. I would say write what you want to know. Like you know write what write write something that gives you the opportunity to explore an idea or a place or a character or a plot idea that intrigues you. And so for me, I love Tudor England. I always have. That's just my favorite period, one of my favorite periods of history. And I wanted to set a novel there. And that's how Sonic came around. As I mentioned before, I'm a political junkie. I watch political shows all night long. Um, I read every article about politics. I follow politicians on Twitter. I want to explore that, and that's why I wrote President's Day. So I don't write what I know, I write what I want to know, um, what I want to explore more. And that's that's sort of how it happened. It's just, it's not a conscious thing, because if it were a conscious thing, I would have remained consistent, and I, we'd be talking tonight about the return of Semper Sonnet um, <laughs> instead of a completely new book. Although I do think I'm going to write a sequel to Semper Sonnet, but, uh, but not right away. <laughs> So I'm gonna have a Friday. Well, I mean, even with just these two, I mean, you know, the historical fiction thing is my my thing, and Michelle likes those political thrillers a lot. Um, so it's like you wrote a book for each of us. Oh, uh, maybe that's my that, maybe that's what I maybe that's my strategy. Yeah, I don't think so. Though. <laughs> yeah. I think so, it works. Um, yeah, but it's it's fun to shift to shift genres, and it's just it's hard to I mean you know I've had a number of different publishers. I've had the same agent for 25 years. And um, and I know they, you know, my agent would prefer. She's wonderfully supportive and will support me whatever I do. But um, you know, an agent wants you to build a following, and it's much easier to build a following when you stick to the same thing. Um, <laughs> and and many authors, particularly in genres like thrillers, mysteries, um, tend to write. They have the same character with different stories each time. Um, so never been able to do that, but maybe. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I can already see it. They're completely, completely. Uh, Julian is going to be very, very, very different from like. I, I yeah. really don't see them being at all. Yeah. Like. He's a totally, totally unlikable character. 
uh, he, he, he's had a great tragedy in his life. So he's the, the billionaire protagonist at the heart of um, President's Day um, who has a, an old score to settle and he realizes that the only way he can do it is by essentially seizing power in Washington. And you know all the wealth that he's acquired, um, all the companies he owns, he owns media companies, um, he owns one of the great um, private art collections. There are none of that will do him any good for what he really needs to accomplish. I don't want to give that away. And so um, he goes after you know the ultimate acquisition, which is you know that's power pretty in Washington. Crazy. I but love that. That's, that's pretty extreme. If if nothing will help him get revenge except the White House, like that's yeah. Well, I mean, I not to, again not to give it away, but he you know there are certain things that only the commander-in-chief can do mm -hmm. involving the US military and um, and that's really what it lies I mean you know no matter how wealthy you are you can't order an invasion right. <laughs> so I'll, I'll say no more but um, so that that's kind of that that's sort of the premise is that um, he has a reason for this a very personal one and well speaking of Julian and his you know the fact that he's kind of a villain um, would you classify him as one of those villains that you just you just love? I mean, that that seems to be a trend now with a lot of fiction and television shows where people root for the bad guys, the guys you're not supposed to root for. Um, is that something you want the reader to do, Julian? Well, you know, so in this book, um, there are two character, two main characters, a protagonist and an antagonist. So Julian is the is the evil genius and the billionaire who's trying to seize power. And then there's a young man who worked for him and it didn't end well, who figures out what's going on and tries to stop them. So it's sort of a race to see who's going to prevail. And so I don't know that you root for him exactly. But there is a certain satisfaction in, and that's I think what you're alluding to, in watching someone hatch a plot and move with it, right? So in House of Cards, you know, we all sort of, we don't really root for the Kevin Spacey character or his wife, but you don't exactly want him to get caught either. <laughs> you just want to kind of see how it plays out. And I hope that's what readers of President's Day feel, that they want to, follow this character. Not, they don't like him necessarily, and they don't necessarily want him to succeed, but they're enjoying watching him go through the, the paces of doing what he feels he needs to do. And I think you're right that uh, there are, I'm trying to think of other examples, but as long as we brought up House of Cards, that's certainly one of them, of, mm -hmm. you know. Um, well, like for me, I, Michelle, Michelle knows I have this problem where I love the villains in television shows oh. and books. If, well, they're uh, always so much, more interesting like there's they're a lot more there are a lot more layers to them so they're you know they're more well developed there's there's a reasoning behind their actions a lot of times you know when you have the protagonist I'm gonna be the good guy just I, I'm thinking about the show once upon a time um, that's the one that really comes to mind for me right now even though it has absolutely nothing to do with politics yeah. uh, <laughs> but with Once Upon a Time, you have you had the good guys, you had the woman who came in and was like, I'm going to save this whole town and all these fairy tale characters. And so she had this background, but she didn't really have a really fully developed driving force. Unlike mm -hmm. the character, the bad guy, the evil queen, who was the mayor of the town, who had this driving force, who had these complexities and these conflicts. And those are the, I think, characters both for women and men are, those are the ones who are really allowed to develop and be conflicted um, 
where, you know, I'm sure with Julian's conflicted about things, or he just might be called a completely, you know, deranged mastermind. Who knows? We'll find out. Um, well, you will. And also, he does have, I mean, he was, he had a terrible thing happen to him. So, you know, I don't know that he was a nice guy beforehand, but this made him, you know, really relentlessly focused on one and, thing. And that's and, something that's really fascinating to explore because oftentimes it's really in, in a lot of books and in movies, something bad happens to the person. And so that drives them to want to be the hero in this situation. You don't have yeah. that driving force to kind of turn them the other way. Yeah. 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 And I think, I mean, it is, it's fun to write villains too. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's just more interesting to, especially since I think I'm just such a great, nice person. It's, it's, it's fun to create someone who is the complete and total opposite. Well, for one thing, he's a billionaire, but for another, he is sort of an evil genius. So um, I like to think I'm not. Well, one of, I love, there was a quote I heard from a musician, and I can't remember the musician who said it, but he was like, the uh, death metal musicians, the hardcore, hardcore rockers that you think would, uh, that are horrible, are the nicest, most sweetest guys in the world. Yeah. Happy-go-lucky happy, go, happy go lucky pop stars are the ones who are always angry and upset. That's funny. I love, that's a great, I'd love to think that's true somehow. <laughs> I mean, you know? Yeah. <laughs> oh, and when, so when you joined us last year about Semper, you said that um, Semper came from the question, what if Elizabeth really did have a child. That was kind of where the idea came from. Uh, what was the question for President's Day? Um, I think it's what I said before, which is um, essentially is the White House for sale, which maybe that's a question that's been answered in, in real life. But um, I just wanted to, you know, what, you know, is it possible for someone to sort of set their sights on achieving that kind of power in America? You know, so it's not it's a sort of a coup, but it's not, you know, with, um, you know, armies marching down the street. It's sort of a um, stealing of the power of this country, um, essentially through money and through ruthlessness. So, um, and it actually, you know, I remember it goes back to, so this is before your time, but, you know, way back in the Reagan administration, um, I remember when he was elected, he said um, that he wanted to bring to Washington to be in his cabinet. Um, and I think Trump has said something similar. Men for whom, he said men, for whom this serving as, you know, Treasury Secretary, Commerce Secretary would be a step down for them, that they would be so successful that the, serving in the federal government would be a step down. And I remember thinking that's a terrible concept to think that serving at the highest level of government is a step down from anything. It should be for anyone a step up to be, you know, entrusted with that. And so, um, and that, and that's that was the genesis. I didn't write it for many years after that, but thinking about, you know, someone who for whom would never want to be president, that would be in a certain sense having to give up too much, right? But wanted that power. He just didn't want the the trappings of it. Um, and I think our current president probably feels that way too. I think he misses his old life, and you know, um, he actually, I remember he actually said it that he misses his old life. Right. What he gave up, not just the privacy. I think he liked his old plane just just well enough, and you know, Trump. He hasn't. I live in Manhattan, and he hasn't been back here since he was inaugurated. He's afraid to come back. I mean, but um, so so that was sort of the question I set out to ask. That too for him. Um, 
you know, that, that mindset, he, I think he was around a lot of people who loved him, who absolutely loved him, who said yes to him all the time. And you, you don't get that when you come into the political arena. You get a lot of hate. It doesn't matter how good you are, you're still going to have a good chunk of the population hate you. And yep. I think he's able to quite deal with that as well. Yeah. One of yeah. The yeah. Yeah. So that was the question: is just you know, is it, you know, is it possible to seize power in that way behind the scenes, and then to think how would you do it, you know, um, and uh, you know, literally step by step, how would you go about doing it, and that that and that's what Julian Mello ultimately does. I won't tell you whether he succeeds or not, but he, but um, but that was the question that I set out to answer. I am even more excited about reading this book now. Than I was before. No oh, good. Uh, I mean, I was excited. I was like, "Oh, a new book from Seth. I'm gonna love it. It's gonna be so much fun." Now I'm like, "Okay, uh, this. I might have to make room in the reading schedule even sooner than before." <laughs> yeah. Next time you're by a pool. <laughs> oh, I've got one in my backyard. So. Oh, good. Um, my husband doesn't make any yard work this weekend. I'm still totally gonna be. Oh, I'm jealous. <laughs> It's okay. You have city with Hamilton and Broadway. We do have that. Yeah, I get to all of that. Yeah. Yeah. I have a pink plastic splash pool that the kids splash in, so you guys. <laughs> I don't picture you reading in that. <laughs> I can totally picture her reading in that. Just give her one of those white tumbler sippy cups or her book. She'll be fine. <laughs> I tried the other day and they just started splashing me. It became a game to see how, if they could get mommy wet. So it didn't work out. Do it during nap time. Yeah, that, that mythical time. Yeah. <laughs> Spoken like somebody who's never had a kid. Yeah, you can all that time. Right. The, the six hours that they're both asleep every afternoon. Mm -hmm. Totally. Yeah, because yeah, kids sleep all the time, right? All the time. Yeah, yeah. And you can just tell them, go to sleep. Right. There you go. <laughs> they say, okay. So, was it just totally creepy for you watching the election or watching the campaigns and the primaries and the debates? Was it creepy for you to see your story kind of like unfold? Well, it you know it wasn't until until Trump actually won because then. It seemed that you know uh, it's a very different story than the one I wrote, but um, but it was a really strange thing to you know, um, and I thought, oh, maybe you know I'll get credit for prescience or you know that my ability to see into the future. But actually, if anything, people say, oh, you know, as I said before, you know, boy, you really dashed this one out since you know November. Well, I mean, publishers, it takes them almost a year just to publish a book once you once they have it and accept it. So um, I wrote it long before Trump emerged as a candidate. And I and I had real life people in mind, a composite for Julian Mello, the protagonist, the antagonist, I guess, of this book, but it was never Donald Trump. Um, it, it, was, it was never. It was, like I said, when you first came on, I see yeah, I hadn't really thought of that. I mean, he he was actually a. I think he was a partner at Goldman Sachs, and um, and then he was a movie producer. Um, so uh, right, and right, he owns a piece of the show. That crazy enough, right? Yeah. So um, so I never really thought of him as a um, uh, a model for this. I have to think about that. Yeah, maybe I conjured him up in my mind. So. Um, 
Yeah, he is stranger than fiction, though. <laughs> so, for sure. Yeah, and he's got some weird. There, there. I watched only a little bit of the Frontline special because I can only take so much now of the headlines yeah. and the crimes. And, and they talked about some of his crazy ideas. If you can look up that Frontline special on him, he's got. Oh, sure, I will. That I missed. Yeah. yeah They've got some like serious. He's got some serious out there um, ideas about history and things coming around again. That oh, he, yeah, he really does. does. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyway, a yeah. total coincidence. <laughs> Not my character. So. No, but I, I do look forward to the to getting to know this character because I love oh, that guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> As I say, as I put the book. I know. I can hear you doing it. <laughs> Yes, that's what that sound is, is me petting the book as we talk, because I'm already like, yes, it's a bad guy. I already know I'm going to love him. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just kind of flipping through it as we as we talk, and I have a really nasty habit, I'm trying to break it, of um, reading the last paragraph on the last page. Oh, I don't know. Um, not only, mainly because by the, by the time you get to the last paragraph, like the, you know, the plot twists and everything, they're done, so you're not losing any of the surprise, but you do know who's still alive at the end. <laughs> so don't say it on don't, don't say it on the podcast. Yeah, so, but I'm but trying not to do it anymore because I've had a couple books that like I totally ruined it for myself. Yeah. So I try some like if I flip through it, I'll catch words and freak out and think that I've ruined something for myself. You're your own spoiler. I know. I do it to myself. There's a Doctor Who uh, policy. He tears out the last page of the book so that it never ends. That's great. <laughs> That's great. Well, this book actually does, as you may know, if you've only read the last page, it does end on a vaguely. It, it ends on. People who read it have said it's a darker book than Separate Sonnet, which is hard to believe, but um, because it doesn't, it doesn't. Well, I don't want to give anything away, but the ending is a little ambiguous in the sense that um, it. Because I think someday I might write a sequel to this if I can actually stay consistent for two books. Um, so you'll see when you finish it that you finish it for real that you do. Uh, it does sort of set up a sequel to it, whether I write well, it or not is another story. Yeah, and you're going to end up with Michelle hounding you about sequels. That would be great. I could use that. Yeah. So send me an email about okay. Sempersana and this one also. Yeah, well, I still like to get crap from her regularly. Um, because he wrote The Lemon Colored Life of Annie Astor, and he's coming on next week. And I think her first question to him is going to be like, okay, hey, when's the sequel? Um, yeah. <laughs> you're going to get that. Now that you've said that, you said that in front of Michelle. It's like telling her that there's chocolate tomorrow. She's <laughs> keep bugging you about the sequel. <laughs> I'd like to be bugged. I, I, as long as I know there's an audience, I'll write a book. So. <laughs> well, you got to. Yeah, so. <laughs> maybe more than two, but that's a start. Well, yeah, I mean, you got us, and then hopefully people um, that are watching and listening, um, if you haven't heard already, we're giving away a copy. So I've got I've got two copies here already. So, yay, two copies. One's going to go home with somebody. Or go home to somebody, because they're not here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Good clarification there. Thank you. Yes, one of them is going to, um, somebody can win one of those copies. Um, so How, that, do they, 
they email you or something? Is that how it works? Um, it's through Rafflecopter, and their ways of entering are either uh, following us on, on Twitter, uh, mm -hmm. subscribing to our channel on YouTube, um, giving us a five-star rating on iTunes. That's an option. Yeah. Visiting our uh, Facebook page. So they have lots of different options. Each one uh, counts for different numbers of entries, like uh, following us is one. Um, subscribing to the channel counts for three entries. So they have three opportunities. Their name goes in the hat three times just for subscribing. And then twice if they uh, do the um, five-star rating. So they can do all of that, too. That's very clever. Yeah, Diane is handling all, handling all of that. I don't understand how any of that works. <laughs> it's this wonderful computer program called Rafflecopter. It makes me look like I'm smart. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's well, great. If we're, if we're talking about sequels, really quick, I just want to say that I still want to try to figure out the last uh, sonnet that Lee wrote. Uh-huh. <laughs> because I remember... We talked about it, and you said that there is a message hidden within the last sonnet. So right. I have to go back, and I'll probably have to enlist the help of someone who is much better with English history and sonnet. Well, it's not, it's we're again. So if you send me an email, I will send you back the key to unlocking that, that sonnet. Oh, okay. Yeah, I will definitely <laughs> do that, yeah. yeah. It's not so much history, it's that it's, you know, the wordplay in it and the embedded clues and stuff, so, yeah. That I'll is that. awesome. I'm totally going to send you an email about that now. And it's <laughs> a hint. Just pointing in the right direction. <laughs> yep. And it's so funny with Stuff for Sonic, because I gave her my copy to Michelle um, before she moved, and then I forgot about it. I forgot that I'd given her the copy, and then... What was it two weeks ago? She was like, "Okay, um, I'm ordering books, and I'm finally gonna replace your copy of Semper Sonnet because I'm keeping the copy you gave me." Yeah, that's, like, oh, that's where that went. It's mine now. Yeah, I replaced it a year <laughs> later, but I replaced it. <laughs> that's okay. Now I have a whole new one with a spine that needs to be broken in, so <laughs> I have to read it. New. <laughs> so. I don't think we, I know we talked a little bit, um, as we're talking now, I'm, I remembered from our last conversation that you said you ride a lot in airports while you're on layovers or waiting for, for flights, but do you have like a routine that you follow when you're riding? Yeah, so I mostly, um, I do that sometimes, but I mostly write early in the morning, that's my routine. Um, so, because I, I do work during the day. I, um, so I work generally between like 6.30 and 7.30 in the morning on novels, on fiction. Um, and I try to write two pages, and I feel really good if I've written two pages. Um, and it's, you know, if you write two pages a day, you have a book at the end of the year. But they're, in my case, at least, they're very raw pages. I have to go back and rewrite and polish and change and edit and then edit some more. And, um, but the hard part, as you probably know, is the, is the first draft, just, just sort of plowing through, it's like clawing through um, rock to, to you know, yeah. just sculpt me, out the editing. story. And, and once that's done, I feel, I, I like editing my own work and I like rewriting and I like working with editors. Um, but I generally work um, just a, a short period of time um, in the morning and try to get two pages done. Um, and when I'm in the thick of it, I'll write seven days a week, so I don't take any time off. So, because when you write this kind of fiction, genre fiction particularly, 
the thrillers, it's you have you have a lot of balls in the air, and you've got to kind of remember what's going on. And at least I can't if I take too many days off, I have no idea what, where I am, <laughs> and um, and I don't like to go back and reread my work until I'm done with it. So I need to keep moving forward. So I, I find if I write a little bit every day. Um, I, I can do that, and it's a lot like um, exercise. You, sometimes you actually dread it, and you don't necessarily enjoy when you do it. But when you're finished, you feel really good. Um, you know, you just feel like, wow, now I can eat a little extra, or reward myself in some way, or I'll get a little, little longer, or I'll look a little better. And writing is like that. I don't particularly wake up in the morning eager to do it, and I don't necessarily enjoy it while I'm doing it. I feel really good when I'm done. And as with exercise, when I don't do it, I feel really bad. <laughs> you know, that sense of like sloth and guilt. And um, so it's, it's very much like that. It gives that same sort of anticipation or dread even. And then the, 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 the high of completing it um, is great. So. I try to do a little bit. Why you love editing? Because right now I'm in the middle. I've been working on a book, and I'm in the midst of editing it. And I just actually hired an editor to help me mm -hmm. get over that last bit, last clump, so that I can get a uh, an agent to pick it up. Tell me why you love editing. <laughs> I do because <laughs> I it's, it's mostly because it's so. For me, it's so much easier than writing a first draft. I just I'd much rather look at a sentence and see if I can make it better than write that sentence the first time. And that's actually relatively easy. I mean, editing, the hard part of it is the overall story, making sure the characters are good, right? Um, but even that, I prefer to go back. Once I have the whole thing roughed out, it just it's so much better to go back and polish it. Um, and you know, when my kids were in school, um, and you know, they would have the dread of facing the blank computer screen to write a school paper. And I would always say, just write, just start typing, you know, just get something out there. And they said, no, but it's no good. And I said, you can make it good, just get it on the page. Mm -hmm. um, and I would say that to any writer. It's like, just, just, you know, some people, I mean, there are writers who do um, uh, shopping lists, you know, just to start, get their fingers warmed up. And um, I actually did that for uh, a story that I was playing around with. I couldn't get it started right, so the character wrote down her shopping list. Yeah. <laughs> the opening of the book is her doing a shopping list. I hadn't heard of someone who actually incorporated it into their work, but I think it sounds great. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I just find that self-editing is just um, much more of a pleasure for me. Um, and, and also because when I'm doing it, it means I've already finished a first draft, which means the book it's, I, I know that it's working on some level, right? I've gotten from the beginning to the end. And so to go back and make it better, I can do that with the confidence that I have something. Whereas until I type the end, I'm never 100% sure that it's there. You know what I mean? That I'm going to get there. Mm -hmm. um, so that's another reason that I generally prefer editing to writing. So well, I like that. I've got confidence that I've got something actually finished. Right. So, yeah. that, that makes me feel better about editing now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, at least you've done it, and I, I, and and you know that the story is working, at least working for you, and yeah, I, I think it's for me, it's it's a bit a bit of a joy to go back and do that. So also, you know, when you 
when you're working with an editor, or in my case, my agent um, does a lot of editing for me, big picture editing. You know, she'll tell me this isn't working or that is before she submits it to a publisher. Um, you know, you um, there's a sense of power that you have. Mm -hmm. So over you know over the story, it's hard to explain, but you can make things happen in a book in a way that clearly you can in life, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I when I edit, I don't feel that when I write a first draft, but I feel I do feel that when I go back to edit, an editor will say to me or my agent will say to me, you know. Um, this character needs a motive for what he did in chapter three. So in life, you can't give someone a motive, right? Mm -hmm. They come fully baked and you take them as they are, but you could, and at first I'll think, oh, I don't know what that could be for my character. And then suddenly it hits you and you think, oh, in just a few sentences, I can put it in there. And now I've changed that, the whole sort of arc of that particular part of the book. And that's a great feeling of, for me, it's a feeling of power. It's just, I've been able to, um, to shape a character that way, you know? Um, I don't ever confuse it with real life, but um, real life is not nearly as satisfying or is, is as um, simple as that. But in books, you can you have that sort of power to change the dynamic of, of stories, so. You're like the like puppet master. In a way, yeah, yeah. It must be such a good feeling to type the end. I have. I can't even tell you how many notebooks full of stories I have that I've never finished. And yeah. a project I, ha I was maybe a quarter way through and I hit a wall and I said, no, we're just gonna start over. So I'm back at the beginning again and the end seems so far away. I know, I know. Well, you know, it also helps, especially depending on what kind of fiction you're writing, but if you're writing commercial fiction, narrative fiction, you know, thrillers, I guess romances, I don't really read the mysteries, um, you know, to obviously to outline it, so at least you know what the end game is. You know, you know where your character is going to end up. If it's a mystery, you know what the resolution is. Um, it's funny, when I wrote um, Losing Isaiah, this is 20 years ago, I think, um, uh, that was a book about um, a custody battle over a small child, um, and it was also it was made actually made into a movie with um, Halle Berry and uh, Jessica Lange, were the two women fighting over this little baby, and um, this child. And uh, I didn't. That was a book that I did not know how it was going to end until the end. I just didn't know how I was going to resolve it. It just I had sort of I couldn't take a side between these two women, and. Um, uh, and one of the reviews said, um, said uh, it was that generally flattering review, it might have been the Boston Globe said, I could see the ending coming a mile away. And I remember thinking, well, I'm glad you could see it coming a mile away because <laughs> I wrote it and I didn't know what, how the thing was going to end. So, um, uh, so but, th but that was probably the only case where I didn't know how a book was going to end when I started it. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah. Although, actually, with Semper Sonnet, the twist at the end, with when you find out who her real identity was, mm -hmm. uh, that I, that was a surprise to me. But the, the why most did that kind of though? Yeah, neither did I. Neither did okay. I. Well played on that one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of reviews, do you like reading reviews? I feel like I couldn't. Do I, I, maybe I could. I don't know. When I finally finish a book, if it does get published, I would. I could just be like, whatever you think, I don't care what you think, it's done, I did it. Right, well you should, I mean that should be the, 
that sh there should be satisfaction in that no matter what the review. So the good, I mean, reviews mean someone's reading it. So that's always a good thing. And I can't help but read them, to be, to be honest. And I will say that, and, and I've, a lot of writers will say this, um, that, that um, you always remember the bad ones. Mm -hmm. And you, I mean, you remember the good ones too, but boy, you know, one sort of twist of the knife about something you've written and you never forget it. <laughs> um, but because of that, I mean, I don't do any book reviewing, reviewing um, and, but I do mostly because I can never remember what I've read and people are always asking me to recommend books. I, I am on Goodreads and I keep a list of all the books that I read there just as a way of having a list so that when someone says, can you recommend a book, at least I can go back and remember what I've read. But <laughs> in, unless I'm giving the author, I don't know, is it five stars is the most, unless I'm giving him four or five stars, I just won't review it. I just think, you know, even if I, if I didn't like, I just finished a book that I really didn't like particularly and I probably would give it I don't know, two stars or three stars. I couldn't possibly do that. I just, and this is a sort of a best-selling book where the, the, the author probably has 2,000 Goodreads reviews. Um, but I, I just, it, mine would not be even noticed, I would imagine, but I, I just wouldn't do it. I hate giving bad reviews because I do, as you know, I do the book reviews. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I hate them. And I, and I try so hard to focus on what specific parts of the book work for me. Like I had to do two recently that I didn't like. Um, and one of it was, I was basically like, okay, I think this is just me. I think this is just me. This is not my time period. This is not my subject. I shouldn't be reading yeah. this. Was it a, the path I took on it? The other one just truly made me angry. Um, <laughs> I was looking, really looking forward to this book. I was really looking forward to the subject matter. And everything about the book was just wrong and awful, and I was just so angry. I wanted to throw the book. Um, I know exactly which book you're talking about. Too. <laughs> <laughs> I got those. It's hard because as writers yourself, you know what goes into writing a book, and and yeah. how no matter what the story is, how personal it is, you know, to put yourself out there like that. And I, I just I, I I can't give you know even bestsellers who do not need an endorsement for me. I cannot give less than four stars. I just, I just don't, I leave none. Um, and then I get e emails from Goodreads saying, rate this book, you know, and same thing with Amazon. So, yeah, I'll, I'll start you on Goodreads. I'll do that, and but I won't say anything about it. And like, I'll, sometimes I'll leave it off of the blog. And I did that for a long time where I wouldn't put them on the blog. And I was talking to a friend of mine who, she doesn't do book reviews, but she'll follow a lot of book blogs and that's where she gets her, you know, recommendations for books and she was like you know as a book reviewer you should be doing the bad reviews along with the good reviews because we need we need that balance we need to know that you're going to be honest with your book reviews and point out things that didn't work i mean it, there are some there are some book reviewers that are just nasty that i'm just like really yeah. you don't need to talk about somebody's book so that they put their heart and soul into right. uh, like that because you're just taking their heart and you're just crashing it against the wall. Mm -hmm. uh, but sometimes- but as you say, on the other hand, if people are looking to you to help them decide what to read, and to, it's not just paying money for it, but to invest you know, hours and hours of their time, mm -hmm. you know, I guess you owe it to, the, you know, your allegiance probably should be to the readers, not necessarily to the author. But mm -hmm. um, since no one's asking me to review a book, I just, I won't, unless I can say, you know, give a, a five star, I just won't do it, so. 
So are you reading anything right now or is that book literally just the last book that you just finished? Oh, no. So I finished that um, a couple of days ago. I won't name it because I won't name a book that I don't like. But I'm now reading um, a book by George Saunders called Lincoln in the Bardo. So he uh, he is George Saunders is a great, great, great short story writer. He writes for The New Yorker. And if you write short stories, you should definitely read him. He's brilliant. And um, he's never written a novel. And um, and this is a very strange book that takes place in one night in a cemetery during the Civil War when Lincoln comes to visit the grave of his dead son, Willie, who was 11 and died of um, typhoid, I think it was. And it sounds dreadful, but it's, it's really pretty exciting. Um, and it's told from um, uh, in the voice of all these spirits that are in the cemetery. It's exactly the kind of book I don't like, except that I am interested in Civil War history. But I don't really like sort of ghost stories or spiritual stories. Um, but this is really, so far, I'm only about 150 pages in. It's really good. So uh, Lincoln and the Bardo. And uh, uh, yeah, you, but certainly look for um, George Saunders, his, um, his short stories. They're just exquisite. They're really something. So That sounds interesting. Yeah. Didn't yeah. you write a story, Diana, once about a bunch of different spirits? Oh, yeah. Um, I did a short story on that. Um, it was a friend of mine sent me, she was on a road trip from Massachusetts to Oklahoma. They, just, they were moving to Oklahoma for work and they went through this town. It was right just before Christmas uh, time. And in the center of town was, you know, town graveyard in the Midwest, middle of nowhere. And, um, and there was a giant Christmas tree in the cemetery. And just randomly, and the townspeople had a Christmas festival in the cemetery, and and she just she posted a picture of it, and I was like, I couldn't help myself. I had to write this little short story about this little this Christmas tree, why this town had a Christmas festival in the middle of their cemetery. I remember that. Oh, that's that's lovely. Actually, that sounds like something that uh, George Saunders might like. He has a sort of an absurdist sense. Um, so you should, if you if if you wrote that, you would definitely like him. He has it's really interesting. Okay. I'll definitely have to look him up. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah. took a lot of inspiration from um, Neil Gaiman's um, the Graveyard Book, mm -hmm. which I you know I, I'm not really into the whole supernatural stuff, but that yeah. one you know very much had that kind of similar thing as uh, George Saunders stuff, where you know this little boy who is his family is murdered and. He ends up being raised by the spirits in the graveyard. Oh. So it's, and as much as it's this book about death, you know, where, you know, he's living amongst death, it's very much about life and growing up and coming into your own. Mm -hmm. And it's this really beautiful book. So I took a lot of inspiration from that. Oh, I'm looking now. I'll look for that one. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a fun one. Yeah. And I guess the last question for the night, since I know that we're running up to our hour now. Um, do you know what you're going to work on next, or are you just kind of taking a break? Oh, no, I'm always working on something, one hour every morning. So I'm knee-deep in a book. morning writer. Uh, what's that? I said, you morning writer is you. Yeah. Michelle, we've got another friend who's a morning writer. I'm the night owl. I'm like the only night owl writer that I know. Yeah, no, I, I have to sort of prove to myself that I've done it before I can move on with my day. It's that sort of exercise thing, like, you know. <laughs> 
So, um, so I, I never talk about what it is, but um, believe me, it has nothing to do with Semper Sonata presidents. <laughs> That's just my MO. So, um, and I'm sort of at a point, I'm a little bit stuck with it at the moment. This, I, I finished it, um, and I'm, this, but I'm editing it now, self-editing it, and I'm stuck on one particular issue that I gotta figure out how to resolve. So it's my least favorite place to be writing-wise because I like to get my two pages done or editing four or five pages, mm -hmm. and I'm stuck on this one thing, mm -hmm. so I don't feel very productive, but I'll, I'll, I'll figure it out. Is it a, a different genre again? No, it's, it's a thriller. It's a thriller told from three perspectives, so in three voices. And um, so it's really complicated because everything that happens in it happens three times. So the, the complication is to add something each time so it's not boring, right? And, mm -hmm. and what you're adding is essentially what another person saw. So it's, I set myself up a big challenge in that sense um, and uh, yeah so so when I'm to make a change that I need to make in this book I have to not just change it in one place I have to change it three places and figure out what the three different people know about uh, anyway so it's, it's a complicated one I'm, I'm a little frustrated but. Well. You have to get through it because now we need to know what the book is. Yeah, <laughs> I want to do it with your second birthday party too, but it's probably after that. So, well, that's perfect. Perfect timing. You're you're going to be our summer read guy. Yeah, <laughs> happy to be. Yes, I, I think that's a must now. So you have to finish this one by by next you know summer. No pressure or anything. Yeah, send me an email to remind me. Okay. Oh yeah, you won't just get an email from us. You'll get like Twitter. Okay. <laughs> you'll, sh you'll Twitter shame me. Yeah, oh, we told you, we are not above that. Yeah. <laughs> if it works, I'll, I'll take it. Well, so everyone, we mentioned it before, but be sure, Diana, Diana will post all the details. I don't know it. The link on our Facebook, on Tumblr, and on Twitter. I think I shared on Twitter. Uh, so to win this book. Mm -hmm. Okay. We've been talking about it all night, and I have 20 pages left in the book that I'm reading, which is pretty amazing, and it's creepy. But then I might actually end up starting on President's Day tonight, because now it's so far past my bedtime that I am wired. So I'll probably <laughs> be a rebel and stay up even later tonight. Oh, boy. I know. I'll regret it in the morning, though. Fridays are always the hardest day for me to wake up. Because of this one glass of wine, Fridays are just like, oh. <laughs> you're, a light, you're a lightweight. I, you know, oh, a few years ago, a few kids ago, it, it wasn't necessarily the case. But yeah. things change. <laughs> but thank you so much for joining us, Seth. Oh, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure talking to you again. It's always a pleasure to have you on the show. Great. So we look forward to you coming back for your next book. I will. I will. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you. you. Good night. Bye -bye. Good night.